folks, I'm John Miller, and thank you once again for joining me here on Everybody Trades, the greatest podcast about Austrian economics and stocks recorded in all of Boone County, Missouri. I dare you to prove me wrong, that particular take. But anyway, what I've been thinking about a lot lately, it's actually something fairly simple, but also incredibly important both in life and in investing. And that is pattern recognition. You see, patterns, if you want to make money, one of the best ways to do it is to recognize patterns from the past and apply them to today. For example, one of my favorite patterns that has always seemed to work out nicely, not only for me, but anybody who's recognized these sorts of things throughout the history of the stock market, is the regional to national retailer or restaurant or any type of business. See, if you have a regional business that is working in a certain region of the country, it's not hard to imagine that when that particular business decides to expand and go national, that it's going to work in other places in the country as well. Think Starbucks. Think McDonald's. Think about Chipotle. Think about dozens and think about Walmart, which started in Arkansas and eventually expanded throughout the country. Now, obviously, if you recognized these businesses at their regional levels as sound businesses and you speculated that they would work well in other states as well and on a much bigger scale, then certainly if you bought that stock and held in for those years of expansion, of successful expansion of Walmart, Starbucks, Chipotle, and the like, then you cashed in big time. And going forward, these are the types of things that you always want to look for. You always want to look for regional to national possible growers in any type of business, in any type of bullish business that you think is going to be powerful and remaining growing in the future. But of course, pattern recognition is not just about pure dollars and cents. No, recognizing patterns, especially with how people communicate verbally and non-verbally, is also a really, really helpful skill to have in life. And I, in fact, as a young man, when I was, as many young men are, I was confused about women. <laughs> I was very intrigued by the young ladies of my school and my social circle, but I had, frankly, no idea how to approach them or understand if they had any sort of romantic interest in me or whatever. But the older I got, I started recognizing patterns. See, I would notice other girls and other people and other interactions between guys and gals and I could see various nonverbal and verbal ticks and communications that were unconscious probably to both of the parties that I was observing, but I was observing them quite clearly. For instance, the girl who brushes her hand through her hair or touches her face or you know various different little things like that. Again, it just goes back to patterns. If one girl if she does a sort of unconscious gesture that gives away that, hey, she's sort of interested in this guy, well, you should be looking for that pattern in other girls that you talk to. If she sort of has a body language that tends to make you think that she's interested in you, you'll recognize that, and you'll recognize the opposite of, as well. You'll recognize the body language of repulsion, another important thing to recognize, all you young fellas out there. But as innocuous... As those two examples, at least in my opinion, they're innocuous. As innocuous as those two examples are, it seems to me in 2019 in our culture today, 
increasingly so, pattern recognition is not only not valued, it's often verboten. You're considered a horrible person if you recognize the wrong patterns. Now, sure, there are certain patterns that we can recognize. For instance, if you say that, well, men contribute to, men actually commit 95 some odd percent plus of the violent and property-based crimes committed in America, well, you'd have a bunch of people say, shake their head and go, yeah, you're right. That sounds right to me. That's a, that's a pattern that will allow to be recognized because by golly, there's toxic masculinity and basically men generally suck and need to be more like women. That's kind of where our general society is. Am I right? Now, on the other hand, let's take a different statistic. If you point out that 90% of fatalities on the job are men being killed, well, that, that's not a thing that gets brought up very much because that almost makes it seem like men tend to sacrifice their own well-being and individual safety for the greater good in some ways, or at least that's a conclusion one could draw. So that's not a statistic, not a pattern that is repeated nearly as often or nearly as comfortably as the one about men creating and committing most of the crime in the country. So again, what we have is we have acceptable patterns that we can point out, and then we have unacceptable or at least problematic patterns that we're just going to either ignore or just yada, yada, yada into non-existence for all intents and purposes. But while the regional to national retail story, that whole pattern is one that tends to still bear itself out for the smart investor, for the eagle-eyed stock picker out there. That pattern still tends to hold true. But what's even more interesting is when you're old enough, and I'm certainly not old by a lot of people's standards, but if you're 20, then I am old. I'm in my mid-30s now. So I'm old enough. I'm old enough to have seen some patterns change in my life, and quite dramatically. And you know what? As a gigantic fan of The Simpsons, I couldn't help but notice last night when I was watching the episode from two days ago that, hey, Bumblebee Man is still around. One of the silliest characters, one of the thinnest characters in, in Simpsons history. And by thinnest, I mean, there, we don't know much about Bumblebee Man other than his occasional exclamations, his humorous take on Mexican television. He's a very thin character that is essentially a total stereotype. I just think it's, and I'm not, let's be really clear, I'm not calling for the death of Bumblebee Man. What I'm pointing out is, as many of you are aware, a couple years ago there was a movie out called The Problem with Poo, And of course, Poo being the famous Indian character from The Simpsons. And by Indian, I mean from the country India, not American Indian. By the way, if you don't know who Poo is at this point, perhaps this isn't the podcast for you. I might be over-explaining this a little bit. But anyway, here's my point. So while th this person who made the Apu movie is clearly on the American left and on the, the politically correct side of things, but what's interesting is The Simpsons has been around for so long now, we've now seen a total and complete flip of the culture. Because in the early 90s, I believe it was 1992, George H.W. Bush said, that we need more American families being less like the Simpsons and more like the Waltons. 
Well, obviously what George Bush was saying is that the Simpsons were not a good pattern, that the pattern of whatever American families had become and had sort of started looking more like the Simpsons, no, we need to look more like the Waltons now. Now, in retrospect, that's kind of an amusing thing to say because when you actually look at it, when you actually look at that show at the time, and indeed its history to this day, actually, the Simpsons are a lot more Walton-like than you might think at first glance. See, they go to church religiously, no pun intended. They go to church every week, as far as I can tell. Now, Bart and Homer might complain about it, but they still end up at church every week. And Homer, for all of his foibles, for all of his flaws, for all of his grotesque gluttony and laziness and what have you, he's a faithful man. He's faithful to his wife, Marge. He loves his kids. He sticks around. He's employed. He provides for his family. Now, this is, sound, this is starting to sound very traditional, isn't it? Marge actually, despite having the occasional odd job, mostly stays at home. She's a stay-at-home mom. So how Walton-esque is this starting to sound in 2019? How many of you actually had a mother that stayed at home with you when you grew up? How many of you know families that have moms, stay-at-home moms, or stay-at-home dads? The point is the single-income household is far less common than it used to be. Again, that's another pattern recognition that we can go into more and more. But what I'm fascinated by is that while George H.W. Bush complained about the culture of the Simpsons then and the and generally so also the culture of the country in so doing that now we've turned we totally flipped it you see the left and democrats in general love the simpsons i love the simpsons okay but apparently the older set the older republican set who would tend to vote for george hw bush in the late 80s early 90s Maybe those type of people were upset by The Simpsons. But now it's flipped so far the other way, we've got the extreme left that is now bothered by The Simpsons. But it's for different reasons. See, in my opinion, it's not that what really bothers The Simpsons, the people who are bothered by The Simpsons on the left now and by a poo. See, it's not that, this is a theory, by the way, it's not that, isn't it interesting at least that they're worried about the sort of traditional Walton-esque American family, in my opinion. Why would a poo be considered problematic? Because you've noticed a pattern that there happened to be Indian Americans who ran convenience stores at some point? Is that your problem? Is it that a poo is a Hindu? Is that the stereotype that you're bothered about? Because that's another pattern that I've recognized as well, that a lot of in fact, most people from India are Hindu. Is that the problem? Is that the stereotype? Is it the fact that Apu is loyal to his nine kids and his wife? The fact that he is a loyal person? Is that the problem? I just don't really see, because here's what I'm trying to get at. There's plenty of characters on television that are morally bankrupt that are people of color. Now, the show The Wire is no longer on the air like The Simpsons. It's been off for 15 years or so. But if you take the character Omar, he was probably one of the first, if not, he may have been the first, but he was one of the first prominent gay 
African-American characters on television, certainly in a non-humorous way, on a serious drama show like HBO's The Wire, Omar was one of the first gay African-American characters on television. And yet, who was this guy? He was basically a murderous psychopath. (laughs) Maybe not a psychopath. He was certainly murderous. He was a bad guy, right? He may have been a likable bad guy, a sort of anti-hero, not unlike Walter White and Tony Soprano before him. But where's the outrage there? See, there doesn't seem to be any outrage about characters who do horrible things, even if they are people of color. What's the deal with that? And these characters are often written by white people, too. So, again, I can't keep up with you PC people and what it is that you're getting upset about because it doesn't actually track. It doesn't actually make any sense because if you're going to take a poo, a poo who is a fully formed character, who is a guy with layers, he's not just a stereotype. Sure, there are certain things about him that may fit a pattern that you find problematic, but to me that's more of your problem than a poo's problem, isn't it? And you know what? I should back up for just a second because when I say the problem, when I say you have a problem, if your problem is with the poo, maybe it's not so simple as just a left-right dynamic thing, right? Maybe I'm being too simplistic there. And in fact, I don't want to be too simplistic when it comes to the dynamic, certainly the psychological dynamics of human freedom. So let's take a moment and let me give you a slightly more subtle take about how I think human beings work. Now, when I, when I talk about freedom, when I advocate for liberty, for individual liberty, what I'm talking about is non-aggression. People should not be aggressed upon who are not doing anything to aggress on anybody else. And then the other part of that is just to simply do what you've agreed to do. So we're all about, or I'm, I'm about at least, and people who are of my same mind, we're all about non-aggression and mutual agreement. That's what freedom means to us. But now, let's take it a little further. Now, I like to say that humans are basically animals that can talk, or at least that's something I've said recently on this show. And here's what I'm kind of trying to get at there. If you think about how humans and our ancestors of early man actually lived up until really quite recently, and indeed this is still how a great percentage of the people on the planet live, we were basically in survival mode for the majority of our history. We're constantly hunting, gathering, foraging, building shelter, Attempting to thwart off predators, to escape, to heal wounds, to escape disease, all of these types of things. The point is, when we were in survival mode, when we purely were just every single day having to figure out how to survive and find our food and not freeze to death, you didn't have a lot of time to think about what was, say, politically correct and what was not. That just wasn't. We just didn't have the time for that. It just doesn't make any sense. You see, there's that old phrase, the devil makes work with idle hands, right? Isn't that the phrase? Did I mess that up? Anyway, the point is, is when a man especially, or any person, any person, but when a young man in particular 
has nothing to do but sit around and think, sometimes those thoughts start turning inward and not in a good way. And in some ways, that's obviously a very good thing. It's a good thing to have time to think. That's actually one of the greatest things that wealth has given us. It's given us the time to have time away from backbreaking labor, away from the toil of day-to-day survival mode, and have some time for, for thinking mode. Hey, we actually get for resting mode, for binge mode, for all the things that we love to do in this common society, in our current modern-day society, I should say. But humans didn't really start getting out of survival mode until at least the 1800s, when the Industrial Revolutions began. But even then, we still had tons and tons of work to do in terms of the life expectancy of humans, the life quality of all humans. There was still a long way to go between the 1800s and today. And indeed, while we had the Roaring Twenties, we had the Great Depression, too. And for my grandparents' generation, that was an incredibly impactful event that shaped their psychology for the rest of their lifetimes. But their kids, the boomers, were a little bit different. See, the the baby boomers didn't grow up in the Great Depression. They grew up in relative affluence. And because of that, the boomers, while they had even more time to think than their parents did, and their parents before them, and certainly their grandparents, and the many, many generations before that. You see, the boomers, they really had a lot of time to think. And you know what? They also had cameras. That was a new thing as well. See, They actually saw what was going on in Vietnam. And not only that, they saw their friends coming home in boxes as well, which is certainly something that had happened forever. But again, World War II was much more of a survival mode on the back end. Just for example, World War II, on the back end of the Great Depression, America was very much in survival mode and not so much in thinking mode. And once Pearl Harbor happened, we basically had without getting too deeply into some sort of World War II discussion here, I just want to point out that the pattern is the overall cultural zeitgeist was to support the war and not really think much about it. It was all, hey, we're all in this together and we're going to do it. Now again, move forward to the boomers. Look at Vietnam. wasn't so simple then, was it? It wasn't such an easy, sele- it wasn't such an easy sell as World War II was, was it? And ever since then, ever since Vietnam, in my opinion, there's been a global disrespect for authority. And I believe that Vietnam absolutely was one of the catalysts for that. But the irony is, is while the theory for the Vietnam War was stopping the spread of communism, in my opinion, communism, quote unquote, or at least growing government, had been creeping into American society for decades before that. So the pattern since World War II is there's much, much more dissent than there ever was previously in previous times to any sort of war or armed conflict of any kind. That's a new pattern. And that's actually a good change, in my opinion. That's actually where thinking mode has been a good thing for the world. I like that we're at least exploring these ideas, although there doesn't seem to be much of a consummate decrease in war activity does there that's the depressing part but 
The patterns that I've just described, I think, are tough to deny. And that gets me to another pattern, which is that people tend to think that the day they were born, the, the time in which of their childhood, well, that was the baseline for freedom. And whatever has come beyond it, well, that's we've lost some freedom as time has gone along there. That's a pattern that I continue to see as well, is that people don't really consider the loss of freedoms before they were born, but they certainly see them in front of their face as they happen during their own lives. Now, the interesting thing is, all these patterns I've pointed out today, while some of, again, they may seem quite innocuous to you, to another segment of our society, pattern recognition is quite problematic, and it really shouldn't even be done, at least only the selected, approved patterns. Those, you can, you're allowed to recognize patterns in baseball, for instance. That's why you notice all the white guys in sports journalism these days are often going really hard toward the statistical sides of baseball, basketball, football, what have you, because, hey, it's one place where they can actually still recognize patterns and not be called a racist for it. That must be nice. Probably why, probably why I tend to gravitate toward the silly fantasy baseball game still as well. Who knows? Basically, there are a lot of people in our current society that are going to tell you to ignore patterns, that patterns are wrong, and that even recognizing or attempting to recognize patterns is, in fact, a bad way to go through your life. Well, what I'll, I'll make a more subtle point. Just get good at recognizing patterns. Now listen, obviously there's bad pattern recognition, and by bad I mean inaccurate. And it's in now the inaccurate pattern recognition, for instance, if you just think, oh well, this one group of, or, or, or this one race of people or this one gender or whatever is lower than me or is dumber than me or whatever, then that's obviously a negative pattern recognition from the fact of that's a horrible thought to have number one but number two it's inaccurate and therefore it's not going to help you in your life my whole thing about pattern recognition is, is let's get good at it let's use it to our advantage let's use it to get a date let's use it to get a raise let's use it to have better relationships with people let's use it to have more polite communication i don't know just a more cohesive society. How about that? And again, I want to give, you know what, one more pattern. This actually, this fits nicely with what I'm going at and the whole thing of communication too. You know what we used to do when I was a kid? Gather around, children. See, there was this thing called a home telephone. Yes, we didn't all have individual cell phones that went with us everywhere we went. See, when somebody called the house, occasionally... I would be the one who was closest to the phone, even though I was, what, 10, 11 years old? And this went on through every household in America for decades. Yes, I would pick up the phone and I would say, I would have no idea who was calling. No, no caller ID, nothing. You would just simply be put on the spot, pick up a phone and go, hello? And then the person on the other end, maybe it would be somebody I know, maybe it wouldn't. But what we would have to do as a child, we would often have to communicate with an adult and then take that information that we were given and then transcribe it onto paper in our own words. This is actually a skill 
This actually, I think, was an important skill that we all got as children. There's a lot happening there. Now, again, I said communicate. That means not only talking, but listening as well. Particularly when you're taking a phone message, you have to listen well. And then you have to communicate well. Now, I think we have completely lost something here. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be a Luddite and say, hey, everybody throw your cell phones into the big muddy. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it might be time to bring back the home phone (laughs) into the house at least. At least between maybe the hours of 5 and 10, we turn off our cell phones and make people call us and make our kids answer the phone. I don't know. Maybe we recreate that somehow in a different way that doesn't involve getting a possibly unnecessary landline telephone. But I do know this. Kids and younger people are not communicating as well as they used to. And part of that, again, is communication is pattern recognition as well. You notice people's body language. You notice people's intonation and their voice. You notice lots of things that will give you clues about their state of mind and what they're thinking and what they're not thinking. Do they like you? Do they not like you? Are they uncomfortable in this particular environment? All of these things are valuable pieces of information. Information is incredibly valuable, and it's disparate. So the more of it we can get, the better we're all off. But if we're just going to willfully ignore pattern recognition or we're just going to bury our faces in technology and our phones and not actually communicate with people one-on-one, well, there's going to be something that is totally lost to a generation of people. Now, maybe there's nothing we can do about that, but if you're an individual listening to my voice right now, I would really recommend to you, put down that phone for a while. Learn how to start watching people. Learn how to spot their patterns. And you'll be a million times off better for it. You'll be a happier person. You'll be a wealthier person. And you'll be a healthier person, too, because you'll have healthier relationships and you'll just feel better about your life. Less stress, better times. Hey, I've said the word pattern 75 times on this episode, and I think the over-under was 94, so I did pretty good. How about that? Hey, thanks for joining me on this episode of Everybody Trades. Enjoy the rest of your week, folks. Take it easy.